We're in Isaiah 36 to 39 today, and Isaiah is a masterpiece of biblical literature. It's incredible. It's a book that's filled with prophecy, theology, warnings, judgment, hope, grace, mercy. Isaiah, quite frankly, has it all. It's got poetry and apocalyptic literature, and it even, as we will see today, has sections of narrative in it. It's amazing. The more you read Isaiah, the more in love with it you become. It, it changes. It, it, it pivots really quickly, and you just don't know what's around the next corner. Last weekend, I was away, took my wife on a trip for her birthday, and we went to the Sierra Nevada mountains. Ever been there before? And it was it's beautiful, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. We went on a 14-mile mountain bike trip. The experience was incredible. The first four miles were an uphill climb, 1,000 feet. Candidly, we, we biked about half of it, and the rest of it, we pushed our bikes up the mountain. So <laughs> we had this kind of strange thought. We rented bikes to push them, so I don't know. But the, the downhill experience was amazing. But what was remarkable as we're making our way through this small little path is that the, the scene was just both glorious and deeply concerning. We're at 8,000 feet on a little trail, and sometimes I didn't know, do I watch the trail, do I look at the boulder, or do I see this majestic scene? And I felt conflicted the entire time. In fact, let me show you a video to take you along with us on the ride. By the way, kids, if you're watching, don't ever do this, okay? Here we go. So here's this little trail with a gorgeous story, 8,000 feet, and I um, wanted to kind of show my kids and uh, family members just how beautiful and lovely it is. And here I hit some sand, and uh, back on the bike again, and I survived, okay, I survived. But the, the point is, is that you come around a corner and the topography would change in an instant. And the, the views were glorious, and yet they were also frightening. There were things that were just incredible to see, and then in another moment, it seemed so peaceful. And you didn't know, do we keep going, or do we pull off and just behold? It's a lot like the book of Isaiah. It's a book that just around the next corner, there are incredible views of God's majesty, but also incredible views of our utter depravity. We're coming to the conclusion today in the first section of our study of the book of Isaiah. The theme of this book is Our God Saves. And I divide it up into three sections, turn, believe, and live. And in this first section, the invitation has been to turn to God. Isaiah is calling God's people, facing dire circumstances, to turn from the things that they would trust in and instead put their trust in the living God. Chapters 36 to 39 end this first section with a very interesting series of stories about King Hezekiah. We see in these chapters where the king places his trust. When he feels vulnerable, when he feels like he's in exile in his own country, when he's worried about being isolated, it's interesting to see three challenges in Isaiah's life that surface the question of what will he do with his faith? Where will he put his trust? And we see in these chapters three particular challenges. The challenge of fear, the challenge of wanting control, and the challenge of affirmation. 
fear, control, and affirmation. And we're going to look at each of these. And as we do, I want to encourage you to ask yourself a few questions. Question one, where do I experience fear, control, or affirmation? Secondly, what is my typical response to fear, control, or affirmation? And third, how does the gospel, how does trusting in Christ as my Savior, how does living by promise change my approach to moments when I'm facing fear or control or affirmation? So today is all about these three particular challenges through the life of Hezekiah. So first, fear. The first challenge that we see in the text relates to the national crisis that was facing Judah at the time. The northern kingdom, there's two kingdoms, Judah in the south, Israel at the north, the northern kingdom had already fallen to the global superpower of Assyria. Chapter 36, verse 1 says, In the 14th year of King Uzziah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So Hezekiah is in the capital city of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom has already fallen. All of the people have been displaced. They've been exiled all over the world. Assyria has marched into the country of Judah, and 46 cities have fallen to the superpower. Assyria now approaches the city of Jerusalem. That's the setting. The armed forces are situated about 30 miles away in the city of Lachish, and the king of Assyria sends a high-ranking military official. In the text, his title is the Rabshakeh. Think of this like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States. It's interesting that he sends him, and this conversation ensues in verse 2. It says, The king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. This might sound familiar if you were with us in our study in Isaiah chapter 7, because it's at this very location that Isaiah confronted Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, about his lack of faith, invited him to ask God for a sign, and Ahaz refused, citing some sort of over-spiritualized justification. Ahaz tried to cover up his self-reliance with spiritual-sounding language. History is repeating itself. Envoys from Hezekiah are sent to meet this commander of the Assyrian army, and in that moment, the commander of the Assyrian army engages in a bit of psychological warfare as he mocks the people's trust in the king. He attempts to discredit the credibility of King Hezekiah. In verses 4 through 5, he rebukes the people that they might think that their words are more powerful than the armies of Assyria. He argues, you're going to use words? 46 cities have fallen. In chapter 36 and verse 6, he castigates them for their trust in Egypt. He ridicules them in verse 7 for their trust in God. If you say to me, he says, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? He plays on a 
internal controversy. Hezekiah did what was right. He removed the high places, but the people loved their idols and they were mad at Hezekiah. And so apparently they did their background research on the controversies of the kingdom. And so he's playing into the local controversies, trying to create division. And then, of all things, he suggests in chapter 36 and verse 10 that the Assyrian invasion is commanded by God. Moreover, he says, it is, with, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So you can see piece by piece by piece, this Assyrian leader is attempting to dismantle the people's trust. Well, the leaders sent from Hezekiah ask this Syrian commander to not speak so loudly because people on the wall might hear him. <laughs> they say in verse 11, speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, but do not speak to us in the language of Judah. So rather than just the volume, you'll see this in a moment, but ask them to, to speak in a different language than Hebrew. But the Rabshakeh then stood and called out with a loud voice in verse 13, in the language of Judah, in Hebrew, he said, hear the words of the great king. Imagine this, people on the walls, they're watching this. 46 cities have fallen. A massive army has assembled. And this Assyrian commander says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Syria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyard. You see what he's doing here? Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Whew. Consider the kind of concern that must have been felt. Assyria has been successful in conquering every other nation. The commander knows his audience. He's playing into the fears and the frustrations of the people. He knows the Achilles heel of their faith. And then here's what Isaiah does. Chapter 37, verse one. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Here we have this demonstration of humility and dependency. Notice, very important in the text, that Isaiah, or Hezekiah rather, faced this fear, and the first thing he did was humble himself and sought the Lord in prayer. He sends word to Isaiah in chapter 37, verses three through four. He says to Isaiah, this is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Reb Shekha, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. What's remarkable here is that God not only hears this prayer, but he issues a promise through Isaiah to Hezekiah that the invasion will not be successful. And then, 
Even after he hears this, the assaults continue. He receives a a threatening letter from the king of Assyria, and Hezekiah's response is to turn to God yet again. Look at chapter 37, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. He read it. I love this image. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. The image here is of a man on his knees with this letter before the altar saying, God, help me. And then here's his prayer. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Wow! It's a beautiful image of a king whose back is like up against the wall. There's no statistical reasoning that he could win this battle. He has no hope but God. Facing fear, his response is to cling to the promise of God, to spread out his concern before the living God. We see here an example of a king living by faith. So can I ask you, what in your life right now is creating a lot of fear? Where are you facing an overwhelming sense of dread and pessimism or anxiety? Can I ask you, what is your normal response to fear? Last week, when you had things that came into your life that were deeply fearful, what did you do? Where did you go? For those of you who are Christians, knowing the gospel, knowing that God loves you and cares for you and has protected you in Christ, how, does, how do those promises that we talk about and sing about here on Sunday, like how do they really work when you get a concerning email or a text or somebody says something and you just are like, this is really scary. What today do you need to metaphorically spread out before the Lord and say, God, I'm really afraid and I need your help. One of the beautiful things is that God allows moments of difficulty in order to draw us to himself. And for some of you, it may have been a while since you've actually spent time talking to God about the thing that you're afraid of. In fact, this morning, it may just sort of be like, oh, that's right, I'm not praying about this. It's okay, it it happens to all of us. God in his kindness today is reminding you, you know, we can talk about this. (laughs) You could pray, I I have a few resources that I could deploy to help you. (laughs) Some of us are so panicky because we're practically convinced that we're actually more powerful than we really are. And Hezekiah goes to the living God, and in this case, he, God saves the city of Jerusalem by striking down 185,000 Assyri, 185, Assyrian soldiers, and then Sennacherib is toppled by a coup by his own sons. Hezekiah had no ability to control any of that, but God did. 
And can I remind you that God has things at his disposal that would blow your mind. So why not talk to him? Turning to God in the book of Isaiah is not meant to be merely theological. Some of us know that we can turn to God. It's not meant to be theoretical. We could turn to God. No, Isaiah invites us, turn to God. Take your fear. And instead of letting it put you on your heels, let it put you on your knees. God invites us to turn to him when we're scared, sick to our stomachs, and very worried. First challenge is fear. Here's the second one, control. The second challenge that Hezekiah faces isn't from an army, it's from an illness. What's remarkable is that right after a mighty victory and a powerful display of faith, we find that Hezekiah's faith begins to falter. You need to know that this section in Isaiah doesn't end with a heroic picture of this king, although he was a good one. What we find is an honest recording of an imperfect ruler. If you're not yet a Christian and maybe you're a little skeptical of the Bible, one of the reasons that I believe the Bible and I love the Bible, why I believe it's the inspired word of God, because of material like this. The hero in the Bible is Jesus. Everybody else is incredibly imperfect. And people who wrote the Bible highlight their own imperfections. The scriptures are full of hope and promise in the redemption of Jesus, but they are also brutally candid about the failures of God's people at every level. The Bible shows us that faith is often a fight, and often we don't win the battle. So if you've come to church today, Christian, and last week you lost battle after battle after battle after battle with believing and trusting, it's okay, welcome. You can start it afresh this week. And it's not as though the Bible isn't filled with people who had to fight their way through faith, and sometimes they nailed it, and sometimes they blew it. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to believe in somebody who is, namely Jesus. Here we find this challenge and the next one in Hezekiah's life, it's, it's designed to set as a transition to the next section in Isaiah where we move from turn to believe. And what we're gonna see is this regular call for God's people to pursue spiritual renewal and frequent spiritual renewal. In, in other words, the people of God in the Old Testament and right now the people of God are often tempted, listen carefully, to trust in previous faith steps. And the message of Isaiah is renew your relationship now. We need to apply faith now. In chapter 38, Hezekiah becomes deathly ill. Chapter 38 and verse one. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. Isaiah shows up and tells him to put his house in order, in verse one, for you shall die and you will not recover. Hezekiah then in verse two, turns his face to the wall. He prays again to the Lord and says, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. It's an interesting prayer. Because at one level, it's true. Hezekiah was a good king, especially in light of his rascal father. 
Hezekiah was a good man. But this prayer is intriguing, and it's not a good sign. If we look at 2 Chronicles chapter 32, the writer of the book of Chronicles provides this assessment. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. Listen to this. But Hezekiah did not make return to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. So despite his faith with an invading army, a great victory that was won, here Hezekiah faces an illness and he tries to bargain with God. He's acting as if he doesn't deserve this sickness because he's been so faithful. In Hezekiah's mind, this illness surfaces an issue with him that he thinks that God should be gracious to him because he's been faithful to God, almost as though Isaiah has approached his relationship with God in a sort of quid pro quo fashion. God, I'm like this, so therefore you should do that for me. What's remarkable, in Isaiah 38 and verse 5, God answers his prayer, but notice in verse 5, Go to Hezekiah, says the Lord. This is to Isaiah. Thus says the Lord. Notice this beginning of this statement. The God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and defend this city. Notice those words. The God of David, your father. Spent some time looking at this whole scenario here, and commentators generally agree that God answered Hezekiah's prayer not because he was right about how faithful he had been, but because of how gracious God had promised he would be. Aren't you glad that God still answers our prayers despite our ulterior motives? Aren't you glad that God still answers our prayers despite our little attempts to manipulate him? Additionally, God offers Hezekiah a sign, and and we see here another example of something that's not right in Hezekiah's soul. According to 2 Kings 20 in verses 8 through 11, Isaiah gave Hezekiah a choice with the sign. Either make the sun shadow walk forward or make it walk backwards. And Hezekiah, if you look at it, chose the backward movement because it was a harder sign. Hezekiah isn't enamored that he got a sign. He's enamored that he wants the harder of the two signs. And then in chapter 38, verses 9 through 20, we we see Hezekiah's reflections on his own healing, which is a commendable section. And yet look at verse 21. Now Isaiah said, let them take a cake of figs. This is Isaiah 38, verse 21. Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. So God's going to use this as a means of healing Hezekiah, and he's already received the sign. And then verse 22 shows up, and Hezekiah also said, what is the sign that I should go up to the house of the Lord? So what we see it's happening here is that there's this control element that Hezekiah is giving into. He asks for another sign. God promises, gives him a sign. He still wants another. Apparently, this illness thing was an Achilles heel or a weakness with this king. 
His father, Ahaz, refused to ask for a sign because of brazen unbelief. But Hezekiah is guilty of the kind of unbelief that most of us are more familiar with. It's double-minded unbelief. I'm going to take a step, but you better bless me to confirm it, because I'm not going to take a third step or a next step unless you can really show me that this is the right step. Hezekiah wanted control. For those of you who are Christians, do you see a picture of yourself here? It's remarkable how in one scenario we can be full of faith and confident and God through our engagement with him can empower us and we win a great victory. Think back of of a season in your life when your faith was really alive, you were bold in your belief. But I would guess there's also scenarios where your faith faltered. In some cases, it's really easy to be bold in your witness. Let's give you some examples. It's really easy to be bold in your witness, but you hoard your money. You don't give because you want a backup plan. You're, You're willing to give counsel to people about what they should do with their lives, but when it comes to your career, God, don't touch that. We have little spaces where we're bold, but really controlling. And this appears to be that kind of situation for Isaiah. Or maybe it's something, I relate to this, a familiar pain, a familiar hurt, and I think, God, I can't do this again. I need to manage this. Because this pain, I know this pain. And I can't do this. Where are you most likely to be a double-minded person? What are the issues where you struggle with control? And then what's your typical response to control? Is it anger or anxiety or blame shifting or judgment? Some people get angry. Some people find others. The way you gain control is I gotta find somebody who's at fault for this because if I can find them, then I can contain it and control it. Could I ask you to consider today to lay down your bargaining with God? Realize that God is being gracious to you even as you try to grab the reins of your life. So we have fear, we have control. These are the two challenges that Hezekiah is facing. Here's a third one, and that's the problem and the challenge of affirmation. If there was a emoji over this text, (laughs) it would look like this. This is a face palm moment. Hezekiah has seen great victories. And now in chapter 39, we find that his self-importance gets the best of him. He's healed. And in chapter 39, we find that a group of envoys come from Babylon. Babylon was at this time a, a vassal state of the king of Assyria, but they were gaining in their prominence and their authority. And quite frankly, Babylon was looking for allies to push back against the Assyrian threat. And so the king of Babylon sends these envoys with letters and a present to King Hezekiah in chapter 39 and verse 1. And the text tells us that Hezekiah received them gladly. Ray Ortland says this, Hezekiah feels flattered and flattery is hard to resist. His sense of self-importance is clouding his sense of God's importance. These envoys have come such a long way from such an important country to gush over me. 
His insecure need for worldly recognition is ruining him. He throws open the doors and draws back the curtains. He unlocks his vaults and brags to the Babylonians about what a big deal he is. Poor, naive Hezekiah. He wants to be a player in international politics. He wants to be up in the big leagues, even if God isn't there. Familiar with the strategy of the devil? Sometimes he uses persecution. Sometimes he uses the seduction of power. Sometimes he uses outright opposition so you feel like an outsider. Sometimes the enemy uses, you can be an insider if you'll play the game this way. Hezekiah takes these envoys on a tour. According to verse 2, he shows them everything in the palace. And when Isaiah reappears, he asks Hezekiah about their visit. And Hezekiah tells Isaiah that he showed them everything. And the prophet offers a rebuke. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord of hosts before. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which was your father's, which they have stored up till this day, shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. What a warning. Hezekiah responds like this. And this is how chapter 39 ends. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Holy cow. <laughs> I mean, Isaiah just told him that the whole thing's gonna collapse and his sons are gonna be taken captive. And Hezekiah's response is, at least it's not in my lifetime. This is a good king who's full of faith in one moment, but his self-concern caused him to have such a, a narrow assessment that he wanted the affirmation of others so badly that he didn't care about the effects on other people. Where do you melt like this? Who cares what happens to other people? They think I'm awesome. Who cares about how we got it done? We got it done and people think we're great. When was the last time you found yourself living for the approval or the praise of others, even going along with something you knew was unwise and not right, but because of the affirmation of others, you didn't stop? It's crazy, he's a good king that in one moment was full of faith and in another moment begins to wobble and in another moment is filled with self-centered concern. And this section of Isaiah ends like that. Because the message of this book is that God is coming to rescue people like Hezekiah. He's coming to rescue you and me. When we're in one moment really full of faith, and another moment we start to wobble, and another moment we're just shot full of self-concern. So three quick applications. Number one, the message of Isaiah 36 to 39 is this, God saves sinners. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Our only hope in life is that a loving and kind and merciful God extends grace to people who would destroy their own lives. Like Adam and Eve, listen to me, we create our own exile. And the message of the gospel is that God rescues us from us. Oh, we need rescue. 
That's why it's a glorious truth. Welcome to church that's not about you. Because quite frankly, you're the problem. I'm the problem. We're the problem. And we need to be reminded about that. God rescues sinners. Number two, listen to this. God keeps sinners. After salvation, after you put your faith in Christ, our only hope to making it to the end is God's ability to keep us faithful. Can I remind you, as Ray Ortland says, that we are spring-loaded to turn away from God. But there's a divine tether to our lives. You're belayed in to God's tether. And every Lord's Day, we're reminded, I got a tether. God's going to help me. God's going to keep me. Every Sunday, it was a reminder that God is working to help our roots grow deep. God saves sinners. God keeps sinners. Here's the third one. God restores sinners. The Christian life is filled with highs and lows. One moment, we can be full of faith. The next minute, we can be full of doubt. The Christian life doesn't look like this, friends. It looks like this, up and down and up and down and up and down. And yet the offer of God is for people to humble themselves, to seek afresh the mercy of God and to turn to him again and again and again and again. Every six days you need to be reminded who you are, who Jesus is, and you don't have to be perfect. You just have to have a relationship with Jesus and keep coming to him over and over and over. So if you blew it this week because you were too afraid, if you blew it this week because you wanted control, if you blew it this week because you got affirmed and all that got into your head, welcome to church. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Come to him and don't let those things put you back on your heels. Let them put you on your knees and spread it out before the Lord and say, here I am. I need, I need your mercy. So when you're afraid, when you crave control, when you're affirmed, turn to him, turn to him, turn to him, turn to him. Why? Because our God saves. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a merciful and gracious God to us. We don't deserve your kindness. We don't deserve any measure of what it is that you continue to extend to us day after day after day after day. And we're grateful for your tethering love. And so we pray even now, as we celebrate the Lord's table, that you'd remind us of these truths. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.